Today's scripture is from Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the glory of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were seated with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, O Christ. We are continuing our You Asked For It series, uh, sermons based on suggestions from the congregation, questions that you've asked. So far, we've looked at the mystery of the Trinity and the holiness of God. We've tried to wrap our heads last week around the purpose of our existence. Why did God create us? Why did he create anything for that matter? All very deep and serious questions. Today's question is no different. Today we look at a question that the Dutch theologian Herman Batnick called, second to that of existence itself, the greatest enigma of life and the heaviest cross for the intellect to bear. So you guys are asking easy questions, that's great. <laughs> You're allowed to ask, you are allowed to ask easy questions. Next time I'm going to ask easy ones. Like, What's your favorite color? <laughs> oh, the airspeed velocity and I'm going to swallow, stuff like that. But the question today is, that this old dead Dutch guy called, you don't care about, but he called it the greatest enigma of life and the heaviest cross for the intellect to bear. The question is, why is there evil? Why is there pain and suffering in the world? Why is there sin and hatred and death? What was God thinking when he made this world? Why would a good and wise God knowingly create a world where people would at one point become so depraved and wicked that it would send a flood to wipe out mankind, saving only a few, a world of hurricanes and earthquakes, cancer and heart attacks, human trafficking and genocide. 
a world that would only be redeemed by the torture and murder of his own beloved son. What was God thinking? Couldn't an all-powerful God have created a world without evil, or at least a world without this much evil? Well, before we dig into it, I have a list of clarifications and things about the sermon. Uh, I'm using the word evil, just by the way, to refer to both what we call moral evil and natural evil. Moral evil would basically be sin, something people do uh, from pride and lust to human trafficking and genocide, something where there is a moral agent who is acting in an evil way. Natural evil would include things that we suffer, ultimately the result of the fall, uh, but without any apparent moral action behind them, like hurricanes, heart attacks, and things like that. Also, sidebar, uh, we should recognize that evil isn't just a cross for the intellect to bear. Uh, it is something that we as human beings bear, and our Christian response to it uh, should include many different, there are many different ways that we can and should response, respond to evil and suffering in the world, and I can't give that, all of those responses in one sermon, but we address it relationally and pastorally, and as people that we know and love are going through painful times, how do we help hurting people? Uh, we do address it apologetically, meaning in dialogue with non-Christians. How do we answer objections to our faith that are based on the existence of evil in the world? We address it practically as well. Things like uh, Christian response to the disaster relief, um, things like Matthew 25 that we have supported as a church, uh, maybe even engagement in the political sphere. How do we respond to evil that's going on in the world? So my, my approach today is, in the spirit of uh, the You Asked For It series, to address Christians who are wrestling with the theological side of the issue. What was God thinking? Why did God allow the world to be this way? And just like last week's sermon, there might be some rabbits uh, that we don't have time to chase. There are always rabbits, right? Last week the rabbit was evil, and we're chasing it this week. Uh, this week's rabbits uh, might be the issue of divine foreknowledge and human free will or divine sovereignty and human responsibility. If God knew Adam was going to sin, did that make it impossible for Adam not to sin? And if it was impossible for Adam not to sin, how was he held responsible for his sin? Another closely related rabbit is simply the question, why does God not save everyone? Those rabbits are excellent questions. No one asked them, so I don't have to go there. <laughs> Not only are they really big rabbits to try to chase down, but Christians do disagree on the best way to answer it. So even if I were to catch the rabbit, it would give us not a pot of gold, but a can of worms. Is it a rabbit or a leprechaun? I see, I don't even know that, so we're just not going to get into this today. You can ask those questions next time around. Now that I've clarified all of that, <laughs> I'm sure I clarified anything. But now that I said all that, I feel better about myself. Let's get into this. So we're in Ephesians again. If you were here last week, the scripture reading may have seemed a bit like deja vu all over again. But last week we looked again at the reason of for why, why did God create us? What are people for? And I gave what I call three layers of an answer from the book of Ephesians from this text. 
Uh, we talked about God's will, which is emphasized in that text over and over again. God freely chose to create the world, and his will is not arbitrary, but always in keeping with his perfect goodness and wisdom. That leads us to the second and third layers that give us a taste of what God's good and wise reasons are for creating the world, and that is to give good gifts to us, our good, but ultimately for his glory. God created the world to give good gifts to his creatures for the ultimate purpose that they might glorify him, which in turn is the highest good for us because God is the highest ultimate good. And so if I'm going to address the question of evil, I better fit it into that same framework, right? I'm saying that's what God's purposes is, are for the world, in his good and wise will to give good things to his people, ultimately for his glory, then I need to explain how evil fits into that. So, in answering today's question, I'm going to return to those same points, essentially, um, related to each of those. So, as just a brief overview, how does evil relate to God's will? Well, evil exists in this world, difficult as, for, difficult as it is for us to grasp, because God chose to create this world in which evil exists, which drives us back to that question. What on earth was God thinking? Why would a good and a loving God create a place where there is often such misery? As I said last week, God's will is not arbitrary, but always in keeping with his goodness and his wisdom. Therefore, God must have wisely allowed evil to exist in his creation for purpose of a greater good, for a good reason. And, once again, we cannot know God fully, but we can know Him truly. So the reasons for evil in general, or even specific experiences of, of evil or suffering in our lives, will always be mysterious to some extent to us. At least as mysterious as the reason for our own existence. But, at the same time, God has not left us completely in the dark, as we saw last week. God has revealed to us that these two reasons for creating human beings are good and for His glory. Evil will fit into those same purposes. The existence of evil in some way works for our good, the good of God's people. The existence of evil in some way serves to magnify the glory of God. So, there you have it. Today's sermon will follow roughly the same outline as last week's sermon, except it will have evil in it. So, this is new improved 2.0, now with 75% more evil. Last week's sermon, this is, this is its evil twin, this week of last week's sermon. So, first point. What is the relationship between evil and the will of God? Well, God freely chose to create a world in which evil exists. And this is in keeping with his goodness and wisdom rather than contrary to it. God had good and wise reasons to allow evil to enter into his creation. We have to be really careful how we talk about this, right? Because God is completely sinless. The book of James says that God is not even tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone else to commit evil. God does not desire or delight in evil as evil in and of itself, 
So evil is, in one important sense, contrary to the will of God, contrary to his character, contrary to who he is. God is not the author of evil, not the author of sin. He did not invent it. His creatures did. On the other hand, God allowed sin to enter this world. He knew sin would enter into the world, and he still chose to create this world, the one that would have evil in it. So while evil is, in a sense, contrary to God's will, it still plays a part in his plan and in his purposes. Ephesians 1, as we saw last week, God's plan for the, per the fullness of time, if I can find the verse here, is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. All the world, all things to be united in Christ. Believers are given adoption, forgiveness, redemption, trespasses wiped out by the blood of Christ, all according to God's grand design. But if God's eternal plan was to forgive us our trespasses, then God's plan had to have included those trespasses that needed forgiving. Again, I want to be clear and I want to be careful as I can that those trespasses are still trespasses. Evil is still evil. Sin is abominable. It is horrible. It is tragic. If we saw it through God's eyes, we'd hate it even more than we do now. It doesn't work to say things like, you can't have good without evil. Christianity is not about cosmic balance in some way between light and dark sides of the force or whatever. This is not Star Wars. I mean, I might, I might wish it was something, but it's not Star Wars. God is infinitely good and depends on nothing outside himself. God doesn't need evil to be good or to be God. So evil is not necessary for good to exist. Evil is not some lesser kind of good, nor is it's not an illusion either. Evil is real, and it really is evil. God hates evil more than you and I do, but God, without desiring evil itself, willingly chose to create beings he knew would be corrupted by sin in order to redeem them through the blood of his incarnate Son. And this is not easy for us to grasp, is it? But the upshot for, for now, at this point in the sermon, is this. That the cross of Christ was not a plan B. God was not surprised by the fall of mankind, not surprised by Israel's rejection of Christ, not surprised when he sent his son and they chose to kill him. The cross is not God saying, whoops, they sinned, I guess I have to send my son now to fix it. The cross is not something that God was forced to do because of any human action. It was part of his plan from the beginning, before he even created the world, before the foundations of the earth were laid earlier on in our text for today, before the foundation of the world. That was his plan to redeem us. So my point in connecting this to God's will is other than simply being consistent with the points I made last week, is to say that God is in control of the world that he made. He doesn't desire evil, but he also doesn't fear evil, and evil cannot force him to do anything against his will. 
St. Augustine said that even that which is done against his will is not done without his will. Evil will always end up serving God's purposes in spite of itself, and God's purposes are always wise and good. Now, in one sense here, I've just laid out the problem, right? <laughs> how, is the, how can this possibly be? So great, uh, the existence of evil is always in keeping with God's good and wise purposes. So what on earth could those wise and good purposes be that would would justify the existence of, of evil in this world, right? Well, that leads us to the second point that I made last week. God created the world and human beings for our good. The existence of evil, then, must work for the good of God's people. All things work together for the good of those who love God who are called according to his purpose, as Paul said in Romans 8. This is difficult for us to grasp, and when we're talking about the big picture like this, it's already difficult to grasp how could evil make for a better world? Is that what we're saying? Uh, surely a world where evil never existed would be better than one that was tainted by evil, even if that evil is ultimately overcome, couldn't we just skip it to the end? It can also be difficult to grasp when we look at individual events, things that happen to us, things we see in the news, seem to have no benefit, at least not one that we can see. But we can't comprehend the big picture, or even how the big picture of just my life, how individual events, seemingly small things, shape the whole picture. It's, it's too complex. Even in the course of my own life, it's amazing how just Little decisions seem minor can result in major shifts. My first semester in college, I signed up for the 7.50 a.m. music theory class instead of a section later in the day. I decided to arrive early, and that's how Becca and I met. We were the first two people in the classroom. So what, what, if, what if I had signed up for a different section? My life would have gone worse, and hers might have been improved. <laughs> <laughs> It's impossible to predict how those things would play out each little change. It's like um, the Ray Bradbury story, The Sound of Thunder, is the, where the cliche comes from. And this guy goes back in time, 66 million years, on a T-Rex or something, accidentally steps on a butterfly, and because he stepped on that butterfly, he goes home to find that it changed the outcome of a presidential election just because of that butterfly, the butterfly effect, I guess. There's a conspiracy theory for you if you want to build one based on that. Somebody went back in time and stepped on a butterfly. But, but the more the Bible gets the big, big picture, the more the Bible talks about the big picture of evil in the world, the more it sends us this message that it's just beyond our grasp. It's just beyond our ability to comprehend. Think of Job 38 or Romans 9. Questions bounce back to us like, where were you when God laid the foundations of the earth? Or who are you, O man, to answer back to God? It, it is beyond our comprehension. But that's not all God has to say about this. Because we can zoom in on, on scenes and events in Scripture, sometimes even in our own lives, where we can see how God works for the good of his people even through evil in the world and in their lives. A prime example is the story of Joseph. You know, the story Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, and as a slave, his 
accuses him of sexual assault, and he's thrown in prison. They close every door to him, hide all the world from him, bar the windows, shut up the lights. But in the end, he winds up in a position in Pharaoh's government where he's able to provide food for the Egyptians as well as his brothers and their families while there's a famine going on in the whole land. And it's significant what he tells his brothers near the end of the book of Genesis. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So what we're doing is leaving aside the big picture that we can't grasp, zooming in on a smaller chunk that we can see, and looking at how Scripture points to the way God works in the world, can work through an evil event like brothers selling their own brother into slavery, use it to preserve life for not only Jacob, uh, Jacob, Joseph and his brothers, but even the Egyptians. We could also point to the way God teaches, trains, shapes people, Christians through hardship and suffering. Think of uh, 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul talks about that thorn in his flesh, that messenger of Satan sent to harass him, and he says it's to keep me from becoming conceited teaches him ultimately to trust in God's grace as sufficient for him. First chapter of that same letter, 2 Corinthians, Paul writes about how because of his suffering, he's able to share the comfort that he himself has received in Christ. Blessed be the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So there's not only an ability to minister, but there's also a a closeness in the church, relationships that are strengthened as that comfort in God is shared between believers. So again, what we're doing is zooming in on smaller scenes that we are able to some extent to comprehend, and it shows us how Paul's personal suffering brings us good things, good things for Paul himself, as he grows in, in his understanding and reliance on God's grace, good things for the church as Paul shares with them the comfort of Christ and understanding how God works through these things and what his purposes are. James says, to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in Nothing. God uses suffering in the lives of believers to bring us to completion, to make us who we were meant to be from the beginning. Now in your life, you can probably identify some things that were painful at the time, but worked for your good, ultimately made you who you are today. You can probably also identify some things that were just awful, and you can't explain or see any good in them. My point here is that the God who worked for our good when we can see it is the same God working for our good when we just can't see it. The song that we, we sang earlier, I trust in your goodness, where I cannot see. His wisdom and his goodness toward his people do not change from situation to situation or from individual scenes to the big picture. What changes 
is that we reach the limits of what we are able to comprehend. But if we know God works for our good when we can see it, in His Word, even in the course of our own lives, then we can trust that He is still working when we can't see it. As I said, this world, our lives, the way everything is connected together, it is just too complex for us to, to comprehend uh, the course of, of history or even a single life. I was talking to Grant Sterling about this earlier this week. He told the story of playing chess with uh, some kind of master chess player. I don't know if the rank was master or, or what, but a really good chess player. We'll just call him a chess master because it's easier. And Grant said, at one point, this chess master made a move that seemed really stupid. Why would someone who is so good supposedly make such a bad play? And a few moves later, it was clear that the master was going to win. And that stupid move was integral to his winning strategy. He was going to win because of the stupid move. It wasn't such a stupid move. And as it turns out, this master chess player was able to see a much bigger game, to think so many more moves ahead, to calculate so many possibilities, to understand how each move would fit together in a grand strategy. There's just no keeping up with them. It's just on a different plane of chess existence or something like that. Um, God can tell you what would happen if you went back in time and stepped on a butterfly. God knows immediately without having to map it out on a whiteboard even, or with, you know, red yarn and pins, what each tweak to the system would do, how it would affect your life, how changes minor in your life might affect all of history. There's a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. You and I can't see it, but we can trust that God is who He has revealed Himself to be. So when we don't know how He's working, we know what he's ultimately up to, uniting all things in heaven and on earth to himself. And finally, as we saw last week from Ephesians 1, ultimately, not only, but ultimately, God's purpose in creation is his own glory. So that in verse 6, this repeated phrase, to the praise of his glorious grace, down in verse 12, to the praise of his glory, again in verse 14, to the praise of his glory, back in verse 10, uh, uniting all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, everything revolving around God's glory in Christ Jesus. Again, just going to keep making this point that we can't see the larger picture, uh, but we can understand how this works in individual scenes within the big picture. So Exodus 9 is a good example. God says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. What's going on? Pharaoh is opposing God, enslaving his people, refusing to let them go free. God says, For this purpose I have raised you up, to show my power, as I set my people free from your grasp. Then at least three times in Exodus 14, it's on the banks of the Red Sea, as the armies are pursuing uh, the Israelites, Egyptian armies are pursuing them, God says he will receive glory through Pharaoh, through God's salvation of his people through the sea, and his judgment on their enemies. And both Israelites and Egyptians will know that the Lord is God. I could mention other examples. The man born blind in John 9, who I call 
that an example of natural evil. The disciples want to find moral implications to it. Who sinned? This man or his parents sinned in order for him to be born blind. And Jesus says, no, it's not what this is about. It's so that the works of God might be displayed through him. So again, those are just smaller picture examples of how God uses evil to show his own glory. You might call them negative examples. God allows evil to exist in order to demonstrate his power over it. Demonstrate how it is unable to prevent him from working his promises toward his people. God brought mighty Egypt to its knees in defense of his own people and to the praise of his own glory. And here again, the same God who works for his glory in ways that we can understand is the same God who works for his glory in the things that we can't understand. His wise and good purposes remain the same. He does not change. What changes is that talking about something we can't understand. So what I'm getting at is this, and when all is said and done, I don't have a complete answer to the question of evil and suffering. I've argued in some recent sermons that the nature of the material world itself is beyond human comprehension. And we look at how things behave on particles and things like that. But the course of history is also beyond human comprehension. How everything fits together, how minor tweaks it. We could go back in time and assassinate this person or that person. We don't know what would ultimately happen from that. The only satisfactory answer to this question would be a complete justification for every instance of evil or suffering, to see the complete picture of how that fits in and how it works for God's ultimate purposes, then the only satisfactory answer ends up being one that none of us could possibly comprehend or wrap our minds around. And that's in part what God is communicating, or was communicating to Job, is communicating to us in the book of Job. You remember Job's story? delights in him as his servant. Satan challenges, essentially challenges God's glory. Job doesn't care about you, just all the things you've given him. Take that away and he'll turn on God, is what Satan says of Job. And Job certainly does hit a low point as his health and his wealth and his family are taken away from him. His supposed friends come to counsel him, which only makes him worse. And if you know the book, God does finally appear to Job at the end response is fascinating because he doesn't explicitly rebuke or correct Job. There's no, here's a list of what you've done wrong or what you've said that was wrong. He just asks him this long series of questions, starting in Job 38. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And from there going in all his works of creation and all of his care over creation how he provides food for wild animals, everything. Job wanted an answer, essentially an answer to the question we're looking at today, how could God let these things happen? God's answer is that there's no way for you to understand the kind of answer you're looking for. But you can know God. That's what he gives Job, is himself, vision of, of his glory and his care over his creation at the same time. You can know his character, you can know who he is 
Know that he does understand the big picture and trust that he is working in all of this for your good and for his glory. And the ultimate way that we see this as Christians in light of the gospel is in the cross, his plan of redemption. Mentioned last week from Ephesians 1 that that linchpin in his whole plan here is the blood of Christ. Redemption through his blood is what sets off this process of restoring the world until all things are united to God through Christ. So God allows sin to enter the world, as we've said. Doesn't need any proof. Someone called original sin the most empirical of all of the doctrines. Just look around you. But sin is by its very nature self-destructive. Nowhere is this clearer than in the cross. God the Father sent his Son. Christ the Son willingly took on human nature, and sinful human beings just did what sinful human beings do. They rejected their Creator, and since he had come as creature, they were able to reject him by putting him to death. And in so doing, Sin sealed its own destruction, didn't it? Satan stirred up these false accusations against Christ, and in so doing, instigated the event that set us free from even his legitimate accusations against us. Sin left to its own devices tried to destroy God, and through that, God destroys sin in the end. So the, cry, the cross, a prime example, how God used evil both for our good and for his glory. He saved people from their sins, all the schemes of hell and powers of wicked men that were levied against the work and mission of Christ in the world. They only played right into God's hand and accomplished what Christ really came to do. The ultimate result, as we've said in the fullness of time, is a world where all things are united to God and Christ where we not only walk with God, but God walks with us in human flesh. New heavens and the new earth, by the way, is not just going back to how things were in Eden. It's better than Eden. The new heavens and the earth are better than Eden. Couldn't God have just skipped straight to heaven and created us from the beginning the way that we will be in heaven? Well, no, because we'll be redeemed people in heaven are worth defined not only by the image of God, but by the blood of Christ shed for us. Think of how this is put in the book of Colossians. Colossians 3, we died, our life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ appears, we'll be revealed with him in glory. To be redeemed is better for us in the end. It is certainly more glorifying to God. We will praise God and know God not only as our creator, but as our redeemer. I would argue that to know God as both Creator and Redeemer is better than merely knowing Him as Creator. To know God's goodness and God's grace is better than never knowing God's grace. If we weren't sinners, we wouldn't need grace. We cannot know God's mercy and grace without standing in need of it. If Adam had obeyed, perfectly fulfilled the covenant of works, he would have earned God's favor and no one would ever know or need to know God as merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
Is there anything better for us than to know the love of God? Without the cross, would we have known and experienced the depths of God's love? How do we know God's love? What does the Bible say? God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Greater love, the son himself said, has no one than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. And after he said that, he laid down his life for them willingly. There is no higher good than God, and there is no greater good for us creatures than to know and glorify our Creator. We know God most clearly cross, where he has revealed not only the heights of his holiness and justice, but the depths of his mercy and grace and steadfast love toward us, though we sinfully evil. And we see God's glory most clearly in the cross. By grace we have been saved through faith. Why? Not a result of works. Why? So that no one may Jesus has paid it all, so that all the glory belongs to him. Let's pray. Father, we have been pondering these deep questions about who you are and about your purposes for us, for this world in which we live. And we can only stand in awe and wonder at mysteries that are too deep for us. We thank you that we have such a God who is great, who is beyond us, who does understand, and who is in control. We confess that we are sinful people, that our wills, even now, still desire evil, still so often would reject you and your will for us, your good and wise and perfect will. And this sin is entirely our responsibility and none of yours. You are not the author of evil. Confess that we have not been tempted by you, that the responsibility and blame is ours and ours alone. And yet, it's here that we are confronted with even deeper mystery that you, our holy and just God, would also freely choose to redeem us to love us, to pour upon us your mercy and grace, lavished upon us, as your word says, so freely given, undeserved. This is a mystery we also cannot understand. We can only stand in awe and praise you for such glorious grace to us. We ask that you would bless us, remind us each day of our need for you.
help us to trust in your goodness when we cannot see. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name.